Psalm 22, as we continue our series, Songs for Our Savior, together. As you're turning there, uh, just a quick word of thanks to uh, Carmen and to Leah for stepping up for the vocals this morning. Our good and dear friend Kyle found himself in the ER yesterday with kidney stones and is, yeah, and is recovering this morning at home from, uh, from that. Uh, in fact, I was interacting with Leah almost all day yesterday, just seeing how he was, see what was going on, see if they needed anything. And about 6.30 yesterday afternoon, uh, he'll be embarrassed about this, but it's funny, Kyle, I know you're watching on Facebook, just laugh about it. He sent me a text and he goes, hey man, did uh, Leah tell you about my kidney stones? <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, go back to sleep from the pain meds. I know all about your kidney stones. Just get some rest. He's like, okay, great, thanks. So anyway, so I appreciate the worship team being able to step up and fill in. And, and we appreciate the fact that God has blessed us with lots of gifted and talented people who at the last minute can do things that they weren't planning on doing. I know that that's happened with me before with preaching. I know that's happened before with music. And there's not a lot of, there's a lot of congregations that can't do that last minute. And so we thank God for that here at Sylvania Church. So this morning, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, for the choir director upon the Ajelath Hashahashara, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried out and were delivered in you. They trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men. And despised by the people, all who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts you upon you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to the roof of my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, uh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and will be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. 
All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. And they will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. All God's people said, Amen. So this morning, I want to do something a little different with this psalm than what I've been doing with some of the other psalms that we've had to this point. I've been tying all the psalms to Jesus intentionally because I think that truly that's what they're about. But this one in particular should be most directly tied to Jesus, specifically the crucifixion of Jesus himself. This psalm needs to be taken from the perspective of the cross. Jesus used the first line of this psalm while he was on the cross. Uh, you have two references to this, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six and Mark fifteen thirty-four. I'll read for you Matthew 27, 40, 46. It says, about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so just to kind of give some awareness of how things used to be, particularly in the time in the days of, of Jesus, shockingly, not always have chapters been marked by number and verse. That's relatively in the scheme of Bible history. That's relatively new. And so for people to know where to go in their minds or in a scroll or eventually in a book to find a particular passage, especially when everybody didn't have a copy in their hands and most certainly did not all have a copy on their phone, you had to have some sort of designating mark to know where in a text you were going to be. And normally that would be the first line, the first main line of a section of scripture. And so for the Psalms, after the introductory remarks of how that Psalm was supposed to be handled, who wrote it, if it was a musical type Psalm, what instrument it was to be played on and that sort of thing. I read that every week because in the Hebrew Bible, that's actually the first official verse of the Psalm. And then verse two is the main line. And so they would come to understand finding Psalms by the first main line. And so if somebody wanted you to call to mind or to turn in a scroll or to turn into a text to Psalm, what we would call Psalm 22, they would cite the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would want everyone who's hearing them to call to mind if they had it memorized or if they were in a formal teaching environment to open up the scroll to that space. And let's go through this whole Psalm together and learn from it. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's informing the entire audience of his crucifixion. Let's turn together to Psalm 22. That's what he's asking them to do. He says, I'm about to expound for you through my death on the cross what that psalm means. I'm about to teach you. I'm about to instruct you. I'm about to inform you of what's happening here by calling to mind Psalm 22. So we need to take this psalm from that perspective. 
The New Testament has given us the interpretive key to understanding what's going on in Psalm 22 because of what Jesus has done with it. It is important for the proper redemptive understanding of the text that we do this. So we will walk through Psalm 22 from the perspective of the cross because Jesus, our Messiah, died upon the cross for us. And so what's going on here? In the first eight verses of Psalm 22, we have the cross as a divine crushing. We have the cross as a divine crushing. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I call to you, you don't answer me. I have no rest. Now, we could spend weeks, literally weeks, doing a deep dive into what does it mean exactly that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, while in incarnate form dying on the cross, makes a declaration to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, that he is being forsaken by him and that The father is not hearing the voice of the son. This is profound and unsettling. But it's all part of the redemptive narrative. Because what does the scripture promise us in both the Old and the New Testament? What does God say to his people? And it's fulfilled in Christ according to the New Testament usage of the verse. God will do what? He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And why wouldn't he? Aren't we all wretched, abject sinners? Aren't we worthy and deserving of being forsaken by a holy and righteous and just God? Should not the wrath of God fall upon us as it speaks of in Ephesians? Should we not continue to be children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins? Is this not who we are at birth in Adam, separated from God, having committed both by birth and by action, cosmic treason against the glory of a most high God? Should we above all creatures who have been made to bear the image of God, who have then turned that image bearing into self-glory and self-worship and self-idolization, should we not above all of creation be forsaken by God? And the answer is yes, we should. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Why not? Because in a moment in time and space. He forsook his son instead of us. And Jesus bearing the weight of relational separation from the father cries out the first verse of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that I in Christ Jesus participating in his resurrection will never have to say those words. We could spend a lot of time on that. I encourage you to go home and spend a lot of time on that. Worthy of worship is the lamb that was slain. And so 
there's this relational separation that happens. There's obviously always eternal unity among the members of the Trinity. The Trinity wasn't broken at the crucifixion. But there is some form of relational separation. The relational separation that was happening between us and God is now happening between the first and second person of the Trinity. So that relational separation can be closed by the work that the second person of the Trinity is doing on behalf of the Trinity for us that we might be redeemed. And Jesus affirms this. Crushing. He affirms the value of this crushing. Notice what he said. Notice here in verse three. Yet, even though this is happening to me, yet. You are holy. Friends, the only way to understand the divine love of God as found on the cross is to understand that God is holy. Holiness is the only thing that makes the cross make sense. Otherwise, all of the critics of Christianity are found true that this is some weird form of divine child abuse. All of that would be true, except for the fact that God is holy and we are not. My God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out, you don't hear me. I have this groaning. I cry by day and night. I find no rest. Yet you are holy. And what happens in this holiness? It says, you who are enthroned on the praises of Israel, the fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and delivered them. They cried out to you and you delivered them. They trusted in you and they weren't disappointed. But then notice here when we get to verse six. The despising of the one who's being crushed, but I am a worm and not a man. Why is that? Because he's become a reproach of men despised by the people. They consider him less than human. And think about that moment there on the cross. Remember, this is from the perspective of the cross. Jesus has called the crowd's minds back to Psalm 22. He had healed them. He had cast out their demons. He'd even raised some of their dead. He fed them when they were hungry. He preached the nearness of The kingdom, Jesus had touched them with a picture of the divine that they had been lacking and longing for. And now these same people, many of whom probably had been touched in meaningful ways by the work that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, had cried out for him to be crucified. Longing instead for a murderer. And an insurrectionist to be released instead of him. They viewed him as less than human. They mocked him. Continue here. They see me and they sneer at me. And they certainly did while he was on the cross. They separate the lip. They lip. They wag their head at me. What do they say? Commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver you. Let him rescue you because you delight in him profoundly close to the words recorded in the New Testament that were screamed at Jesus while he was dying on the cross. He saved others. Can he not save himself? What an incredible sermon Jesus is preaching from the cross by quoting this verse. He's despised by men. He's considered less than human. He's mocked and mistreated and abused. Friends, the cross is a divine crushing. We see this in Isaiah. We see this in other places. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ is crushed under the weight of the wrath of God. This is what he's praying about in the garden prior to the crucifixion. May this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The, the cup of the wrath of God, that's the metaphor from the Old Testament. But friends, the cross is not just the divine crushing. Praise God. Amen. Yes. The, the cross is not just the divine crushing. The cross is also an experience of deliverance. Notice as we pick up in verse nine, the majesty of the incarnation is made known. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts upon you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. There is a deep, intimate relational connectivity from birth of the one who's saying this, the one that this is about. Jesus making a declaration of his incarnation, even on the cross of my relationship with the father and my existence in this world is not like yours. It is altogether different. And even though this is happening to me right now, and even though this is the will of God for this to happen to me right now, and even though from eternity past, this was the eternal plan A of redemption among the members of the Trinity, that the Father would will it, and the Son would bear it, and the Spirit would deliver it to the people. I am a participant in the eternal plan of the triune God, which I am a member. I am not like you, he's saying here in Psalm 22. I have a relationship from birth with God that does not require my personal faith or the application of God's grace or the removal of my sin. I was born into a right standing with God because I am the God of whom I have the right standing. Majesty of the incarnation being declared here. This trust from the womb. And so then he makes a declaration In light of this reality of the incarnation. For the father to not be far from him. Verse 11. Be not far from me. For trouble is near. And then he begins listing out the kind of trouble that he is surrounded by. I'm surrounded by evildoers. I'm surrounded by the dogs. You just kind of walk through the text. You see all the different metaphors. The bulls and the sword. And a variety of other kinds of people. By using all of these different metaphors. Jesus is making a declaration on the cross. That he would be surrounded by both the Jew and the Gentile. The evildoer. And the dog. Scanning the room. Sorry my Gentile friends. You are the dogs. That's who we are. And there in that crowd, we had both. We had those who should have known better because they had the law and the writings and the prophets and the priesthood and the prophets and the temple and the sacrifices and Moses. And they they had every advantage, Paul says. And then there were those in the crowd who are some of our ancestors. Worshipping a variety and host of pagan deities thinking that philosophically they were just doing what was just and right to this treasonous person who's trying to overthrow the power of Caesar. He's surrounded by these people. 
And then notice the description that he gives of what's happening to himself. His body being broken and his strength being gone. Verse verse 14, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. It's intriguing that he is pierced through. And the blood mixes with the water and it shows that he has no life left in him. This is the language that he's using here in reference to Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. I, I, I am suffocating from thirst. What did he cry out while on the cross? I'm thirsty. I thirst. Friends, this is a devastating and profound picture of his suffering. Notice in verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. I will never, ever preach a sermon as good as the one that Jesus preached when he said this one line from this one psalm dying on the cross. Remarkable. But notice, because I said the cross is an experience of deliverance. You have this majesty of the incarnation. You have this cry that God would be near him because of it. You have this declaration of the suffering that he's facing. But notice how he closes this section in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. You are my help. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen. You will answer me. But you, O Lord, will save me. You will. Because this is what we always planned to do. No one here in this crowd that's killing me right now actually has any power at all. This is all part of the design. And in a very short stretch of time, I will be resurrected from the dead. You will save me. Jesus knew it full well. That the suffering that he experienced on the cross. Was just a precursor to the glory of the resurrection to come. Which leads us then to the third point. Not only is the cross a divine crushing and an experience of deliverance, but the cross should be viewed as a salvation experience. Look at verse 22 to the end. 
There is a proclamation of God's great name through this event. I, now listen, this person is, for all practical purposes, just described fairly well before the formal Roman introduction of crucifixion, the process of being crucified to death. And notice what David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be used by Jesus to proclaim this mighty sermon from the cross. Notice what Jesus is saying about himself by pulling the attention to this psalm. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. I'm dying right now. My whole body's being torn apart. The blood itself is flowing from me. It will be like my heart is made of wax. I'm being crushed. I'm being tormented. I'm being destroyed. I'm being overwhelmed. I'm being driven to death. There should be nothing left of me. But when all is said and done, I will be the one to declare your glory. Me. I will do it. I will stand up again and I will declare the glory of God. Which, friends, is exactly what Jesus did from the time of the resurrection to the ascension. And what Jesus has been doing through his mouthpieces, his church, ever since. This event will lead to the greatest proclamation of God's great glory that the world has ever known. And what will this event do? This will bring about the praise and awe among all people. Notice, look what it says, verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried for him in help, he heard. For generations, the nation of Israel have been crying out to God for help. And for generations, the nation of Israel had been falling back into their old patterns of sin. For generations, the nation of Israel had been breaking the covenant of God. For generations, the Gentile people had been living and dying without any hope of God in the world, as it tells us in the New Testament. And then... We have in the moment of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a tearing down of the veil, separating the glorious place of God's redemption, the holy of holies, the place of atonement and exposing it for all people everywhere to have full access to without the need of a mediary, without the need of an intercessor, without the need of a priest, but solely accessed by Jesus Christ alone, walking into the glorious presence of God, crying out with that same voice that generations have been crying out with, I am despised, I am alone, I am in despair, I am broken, I have no hope. And the response from heaven being, you have hope in Christ. This is a ridiculous sermon, guys. Ridiculous. One verse. He just says it. He says, hey, look, this is what's happening in front of you right now. And what will happen? What will happen? That last one, it it gets to me. 
He abhor, he does not despise nor abhor the affliction of the afflicted, verse 24. And then when you move into verse 25, coming off of that, it says they cry for help. He hears them. How does he hear them? For you comes my praise and the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted, the ones he just said he would help, will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Friends, God will supply true and lasting comfort to the afflicted. Now, we strip it all the way back to the affliction of our sin prior to our faith in Christ. That is the greatest Demonstration of God helping the afflicted. Delivering us from our sin. But friends, the Lord doesn't just deliver us from our sin and just pat us on the head and leave us there. He's a God of all comfort. He is a God of joy and peace and hope and delight and blessing. He is the one who can take our our sorrow And turn it into laughter. Our mourning and turn it into joy. He is the one who can cause us by the power of his spirit and the abiding presence of his son. To rise above the broken circumstances of our lives. And delight in him regardless of the pain we find ourselves in. Friend this morning I don't know what you may or may not be going through. But if you find yourself to be afflicted. You will eat. And you will be satisfied. And your heart will live forever. This is a promise from the word of God. This is not health, wealth, prosperity gospel that I'm preaching to you. This is the promise of God. That regardless of your earthly and worldly circumstances. And the trials that you face. If you are in Christ. He hears you and delivers you from your suffering. Say, but Philip, I'm still going through it. We've said it way too many times, but it bears repeating. God does not always deliver you from your circumstances. He often delivers you in your circumstances. Because, friends, Jesus came off the cross when he got done preaching the sermon, but somebody else helped him down. He still died. Paul, when suffering in the Roman prison, still went and faced the death that Caesar had for him. John still faced his exile in Patmos. God doesn't always change our circumstances. He changes the man or the woman who is found in those circumstances. My heart has been delivered and will live forever. It is the voice of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. O king, we know that our God can deliver us from your fire. But even if he does not. We will not bow down to your image. It's beautiful. 
And you know, this thing that Jesus did on the cross wasn't just for the people who were watching it at the moment. Notice in verse 27, it's not just for those who see it, but for future generations as well. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. I don't want to wrangle over words. Is the Lord's. Not will be. Is. Now. Currently. Presently. Before Jesus was actually born when the psalm was written. Still his kingdom. And what happens here? He rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Now. This is too serious of a moment, but I would be missing a great opportunity if I didn't share with you. That verse 29, the word that's translated prosperous, literally means the fat ones. That's what it means. Because in the Old Testament context, if you were scrawned out skinny, it meant that you were possibly going to die of starvation and didn't have any way to take care of yourself. And if you, you know, had a healthy girth about you, that meant that you'd been blessed with the things that you needed and were able to eat plenty of meals and not have to skip any of them and didn't necessarily have to burn off a lot of calories working out in the field because you had other people working out in the field for you. And so right here, he's saying those who've been blessed by God will eat and will worship. Everyone who goes down to the dust, who is that? All, all of us. It's talking about dying. Everybody who dies. Okay. What are they going to do? The one who can't keep his soul alive. I can't. Can you? Can you change? And add one day? You know, Jesus threw that out there. Can you add one day? No. I, I can't do this. These people currently will worship him for what has been done. But the future generations will do it also. Look at what it says, verse 30. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. By the way, that's what we're doing now. Does anyone here to actually visibly watch and observe the crucifixion yourself? Okay, good. No. Yet most everyone in this room has put a very deep, meaningful, profound stake in the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it will be told to the coming generation. And what will they say? They will come and declare his righteousness to who? Who will they do this to? To a people Who will be born? They haven't even been born yet. Haven't even been born yet. 
And there will be a message of the great, glorious righteousness of God that is only found in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what will that do? It will inform them of one great thing. Look at this last phrase. That he has performed it. That he's performed what? What was Jesus, friends, get ready, because this messes my head too. What was Jesus technically on the books in Roman law being crucified for? What did it say above the cross? That he was king of the Jews. He declared himself. Even Pilate asked him, are you a king? And what did Jesus say to him? It is as you say. He never even denied it. And so he's being publicly crucified for calling himself a king. And what is the psalm about? The kingdom is his. He rules over the nations. He is the one that has caused these people to be prosperous, to worship, to have life. And he is the one who has performed it in their effort to put him down for calling himself a king. All they did was seal forever the fact that he was already the king. That's what they did. Because forever he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords anyway. And now God has given him, because of the resurrection, a name which is above Every single name. And now today we speak about Jesus. Why do we even still talk about him? Carpenter's son born on the backside of nowhere. Why do we still talk about him? If he were just some sort of empty Messiah religious figure, which were running rampant in the end of the B.C. era and the early A.D. era all over the Middle East. Why this one? Why does he stand out? Why does he stick out? Because unlike the rest of them, he didn't stay dead. And so we still talk about him. And you know what profoundly offends everyone who's not in the faith? It's not conversations about God. You can talk generically about God all day. No one cares. You can talk about some vague, perverse version of Christianity where Jesus is some moral example. Nobody cares. But if you stand up and say that Jesus is the Christ Messiah, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, who died upon a cross as a sacrifice for sin and was raised from the dead to demonstrate His power over sin and death in our lives as the great King. Let me tell you something real real quick, friend. You're going to offend some people. And the only reason we're still talking about Jesus today is because of that last bit that I just said. Because He's the King eternal. Raised from the dead. He has performed it. I did this. You thought you nailed me up here. You didn't. 
You thought you took me down from here and laid me down. I was just going to stay dead. I didn't. You thought that death could hold me. It couldn't because I'm king over death. I'm king over judgment. I'm king over God's wrath. I'm king over salvation. I am sovereign king over all. And as great theologian Abraham Kuyper said, and we'll close with this, there is not one single iota of anything in this universe where King Jesus does not look out over it and say, that is mine. Jesus is our Messiah. And this is the sermon that he preached by saying this one line of the beginning of Psalm 22 while dying on the cross. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the glorious testimony of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the profound power behind these words of Psalm 22. Thank you for the pictures of divine crushing. Thank you for the pictures of the incarnation. Thank you for the pictures of deliverance, the pictures of salvation, the pictures of Jesus's kingship. And Father, the fact that at the end of it, he has performed all of it. He calls us not to earn it, not to do it, not to perform it, but merely to enjoy the gift of participation in it. That we come and we eat and we worship. And that we declare this great righteousness to the coming generation. Father, may our lives be worthy of announcing such a great truth. And may our afflicted, downtrodden, and wounded hearts be lifted up that you, God of heaven, have given us the ultimate deliverance in all things, namely, participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we be glad in that today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.